I have a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, we can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can also listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 65 of History of the Marine Corps, the first battle of Bull Run. Last week's episode introduced the American Civil War. We talked about causes, the impact on U.S. citizens, and the impact on the United States military. In this episode, we cover how the Marine Corps and the Navy began to prepare for an uprising. We also cover the opening shot of the war and cover the Marines' participation in the first major land battle of the American Civil War. We also discuss the Marines' participation of the first naval expedition of the war as well. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. In the months leading up to the Civil War, tensions started to rise between American citizens. In the winter of 1860, the Charleston Mercury editor published an article which told its South Carolina readers that, quote, the issue before the country is the extinction of slavery, unquote. The editor issued a call for action and stated, quote, no man of common sense who has observed the progress of events and is not prepared to surrender the institution, can doubt the time for action has come, now or never. The existence of slavery is at stake. Unquote. At the time, the U.S. president was James Buchanan, but his administration did little to stop the hostilities from escalating. The administration also did very little to prepare for a potential civil war. At the end of 1860, the United States naval vessels were active throughout the world. Still, the administration did not recall any of those ships to help with a potential national emergency. It wouldn't be until Abraham Lincoln was in office that the U.S. military started to prepare resources for a possible attack from the South. On March 4, 1861, 15 steam vessels overseas were ordered back to the United States for service. This recall included most vessels abroad, and only three remained in international waters. Congress also rushed the ships in reserve into commission, and commercial vessels were outfitted with weapons for war. In addition to the recalls and retrofitting commercial vessels, 
the Union started a massive shipbuilding project to increase the number of naval warships available quickly. This quick rise in naval vessels required more Marines, and most Marines who were currently serving were assigned to duty at sea. As the war continued to its final years, the number of Marines needed at sea grew, and nearly all Marines were serving on some ship. The primary mission of the United States Navy was to create a blockade that stretched from the Chesapeake Bay to the Gulf of Mexico and up the Rio Grande River. The purpose of this blockade was to separate the southern states. The amount of territory this covered was enormous, and the only way the Navy could handle the breadth of this responsibility was with help from the U.S. Army. While the Navy was patrolling the seas, the Army would seize important forts along the Atlantic seaboard and protect them from falling into the Confederates' hands. The North periodically used Marines for amphibious landings in the Civil War. However, the Union didn't use them as much as they probably should have. During the Mexican-American War, the U.S. Navy and Marines had a lot of experience deploying amphibious forces to help seize forts along the coast. Using a skilled fighting force with training specifically for this task was proven to be extremely effective. But despite the Navy and Marine Corps stopping Mexican forces with this tactic a decade and a half prior, only one battalion of Marines was available to this fleet to help with amphibious landings. Instead, the Navy relied on the Army to take on this role. But that doesn't mean the Marine Corps was waiting idly by. They were preparing for an uprising. On January 5, 1861, 250 Marines and four officers boarded the steamer Star of the West at New York City and headed for Fort Sumter in South Carolina to provide additional support to the Army. That same day, 40 Marines, commanded by Captain Algernon S. Taylor, were garrisoned at Fort Washington. Another detachment of Marines, commanded by First Lieutenant Andre J. Hayes, was garrisoned at Fort McHenry in Baltimore four days later, and on the 14th, Marines were assigned to man the howitzers and prepare the defenses of the Navy Yard in Washington, D.C. The Marines at the Washington Navy Yard were also armed and given necessary supplies just in case Confederates attacked the base. On March 4, 1861, Abraham Lincoln was sworn into office, and the secession of one state after another started to occur. Two weeks after Lincoln was sworn in as president, the Confederate vice president, Alexander H. Stevens, gave his cornerstone speech, which summarized the reasons for the revolution. Again, his speech clearly outlines the views of the South. Quote, Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid and its cornerstones rest upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man that slavery's subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition, unquote. I'll leave a link to his full speech on this episode page on historyofthemarinecorps.com so you can read it yourself. Although the Civil War didn't officially kicked off when Stephen gave his speech, it was inevitable that tensions were heading in that direction. The Confederate states already seized almost all the southern forts and naval yards in the south, there were only a few coastal strongholds that the United States still controlled. South Carolina was the home of three of those forts, 
Castle Pickney, whose only defense was a sergeant who was a single father, and his teenage daughter. Fort Moultrie, which was the main fort defending Charleston Harbor, and Fort Sumter, a fort residing on a man-made island and was still under construction. In November 1860, Major Robert Anderson was placed in charge of U.S. forces in Charleston, South Carolina. He established his headquarters at Fort Moultrie, and after South Carolina seceded, he moved 85 of his men to Fort Sumter. The reason for this move was due to the location and fortification of Fort Sumter. This fort was the only one in the area where he could safely defend the harbor using the least number of men. Anderson's decision angered the local residents, and in response, they seized all federal property in the area within a few days. The only exception was Fort Sumter. With most defenses occupied by the Confederate states, South Carolina started to build up defenses around the harbor's opening. Fort Moultrie had other cannons and men garrisoned, and Sullivan Island, James Island, and Morris Island, all bordering the mouth of the harbor, were fortified as well. Anderson quickly tried to complete the fort's construction and build up its defenses, but only half of the cannons needed were ready and in position by April. But Anderson still faced the staffing issue, and even the cannons that were ready didn't have enough men to operate them. While the Union was building up Fort Sumter, the Confederacy was planning their attack. 43 cannons were targeting the fort, and 3,500 troops were handling Charleston Harbor's defenses. During the beginning of this episode, we touched on the 250-ish Marines that boarded the Star of the West and headed to Fort Sumter with supplies. The ship was unarmed, and as the Marines started to approach the fort, the Citadel Battery on Morris Island opened fire on the ship. With little option, the Star of the West turned around, never reaching the fort. By April 12, 1861, Anderson and his men were in a tough spot. They were surrounded and were low on supplies. The country wasn't officially at war yet, and to avoid escalating into a full-blown war, the Confederate government ordered Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, or PGT Beauregard for short, a Confederate general, to demand the evacuation of Anderson and his men. If Anderson would refuse, Beauregard was ordered to destroy it. Beauregard sent negotiators to the fort, twice, under a flag of truce, and delivered the message to Anderson. Beauregard was an exceptional artillerist. He was so good that his artillery instructor kept him on as an assistant for another year at West Point. That instructor was Major Robert Anderson, the Union commander in Fort Sumter. Anderson rejected Beauregard's terms on both occasions, and at 0430 on April 12, 1861, Fort Johnson on James Island fired a single shot over Fort Sumter. The order to fire the first shot actually came from a civilian, Edmund Ruffin, who looks a lot like Vigo the Carpathian from Ghostbusters 2. Go ahead and pause this episode and look up that reference. I'll wait. This shot was the signal to the other batteries to commence an assault on the fort. It was the official start of the Civil War. The Confederate forts bombarded Fort Sumter for 34 hours. The shores were filled with civilians watching this bombardment. 
On the second day, one of the shots from a Confederate cannon sent the fort on fire. Anderson didn't have the men needed to put out the flames. So at 1400, he surrendered the fort. After a 50-gun salute to the American flag, Anderson and his men boarded a Union supply ship and left Fort Sumter. Confederate soldiers moved in and raised the Confederate flag. Remarkably, the only casualty during this entire battle was a Confederate horse. Quote, it was a bloodless opening to the bloodiest war in American history. Unquote. In response to this attack, Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers to join the Union. But most of those 75,000 volunteers would join the Army. And the Marine Corps and the Navy wouldn't have much action for the first few months of the war. Their major area of operation was the Potomac, where they captured rebel vessels in the area. On January 21st, a battalion of 12 officers and 356 enlisted Marines, commanded by Major John C. Reynolds, was assigned to the Army. They were part of the Union Army's 1st Brigade, 1st Division, and would participate during the first Battle of Bull Run. This event would be the first major conflict of the Civil War. The Marines were assigned to Captain Griffin's battery and helped with artillery. 35,000 Union troops left Washington, D.C. and advanced towards a Confederate force of 20,000 near a small river known as Bull Run. The battle opened with artillery from the Union firing at the Confederate troops across the river. The first two hours of the battle favored the Union, and they were able to push back 4,500 Confederate troops slowly. Gathered in the nearby landscapes were civilians, including reporters and members of Congress. When they saw the Confederate Army falling back, they cheered and prematurely celebrated a Union victory. But as the battle continued, Confederate reinforcements started to arrive. Johnston and Beauregard's forces joined the Confederate troops, and soon the Union's progress stopped. By 1600, the number of men on both sides were about 18,000 each. The Confederate Army would scream as they attacked the Union. This screaming would eventually be known as the Rebel Yell. As the Confederate Army advanced, yelling at the Union soldiers, the Northern Army started to retreat. As they were fleeing, they ran into the spectators, who started fleeing as well. The Union lost with almost 3,000 casualties. The Confederate Army had around 1,800 casualties. This battle wasn't like previous conflicts where the Marines performed heroically, despite soldiers retreating all around them. The Marines didn't have many notable actions and Major Reynolds blamed his failure on his Marines' experience. In his report to the Commandant of the Marine Corps, he said, quote, I am constrained to call your attention to the fact that when taking into consideration that the command was composed entirely of recruits, not one being in service over three weeks, and many had hardly learned their facings, the officers likewise being but a short time in the service, their conduct was such as to elicit the highest commendation. Of the 350 officers and enlisted men under my control, there were two staff officers, two captains, one first lieutenant, nine non-commissioned officers, and two musicians who were experienced from length of service. The remainder, of course, raw recruits, which being considered, 
I am happy to report the good conduct of officers and men, unquote. The Marines faced many casualties that day. Second Lieutenant Hitchcock and Private Clegg, Harris, Hughes, Lane, Moore, Perkins, Riley, and Ward were killed. Brevet Major Jacob Island, who we discussed during the Mexican-American War, one lieutenant, one corporal, and 16 privates were wounded. 16 other privates were missing. Commandant Harris knew about the lack of experience from his men, and he had reservations about their proficiency. He had, quote, feelings of great anxiety, lest it should fail to sustain the good reputation of the Corps, unquote. But despite the Commandant's doubts, he sent in the Marines anyways, resulting in one of the highest number of casualties the Marine Corps has faced in previous battles. In a letter to the Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, the Commandant stated, quote, It was the first instance recorded in its history where any portion of its members turned their backs to the enemy. Unquote. This loss also highlighted the seriousness of the war. The Confederacy wasn't a bunch of clueless rebels. They were made up of skilled military professionals who were fighting and training alongside Union soldiers in a not-too-distant past. The reality started to set in for military leaders and Congress. On July 25, 1861, Congress authorized an act that increased the Marine Corps' strength by 93 officers and 3,074 enlisted. As fast as recruits poured in, they were sent to new assignments to support the war. On August 19th, leadership sent 200 Marines from the Navy Yard at Washington to the Potomac Flotilla. The mission of this flotilla was to search and destroy Confederate depots in Maryland. A week and a half later, another group of Marines would participate in the war's first naval expedition. In the middle of August, naval vessels received word about large amounts of supplies being smuggled into the Confederacy by the English. On August 26th, Marines from the frigates Minnesota and Wabash and the sloops Cumberland and Susquehanna left Hampton Roads and headed for Hatteras. They approached the shallow waters off Hatteras the afternoon on the 27th and prepared for a landing. A joint expedition made up of 1,000 soldiers and Marines under General Butler and several naval vessels commanded by Commodore Silas H. Stringham began the assault. As the squadron approached its target, they found that the entrance to Hatteras was reinforced. As the weather started to turn, the plan of landing a large military force started to seem unlikely. The landing size was reduced, and a detachment of Marines from the Minnesota, commanded by Captain William L. Shuttleworth, transferred to the Harriet Lane. Along with 250 soldiers, the Marines landed in special boats, most of which were destroyed when they hit the shore. The warships off the coast supported the Marines and soldiers with bombardment from the sea. After four hours of fighting, the American flag was flown from Fort Clark. The sight of the flag caused the ships to cease fire and the Union rested for the night. It was a cold, wet night, so the Marines spent the night huddled together in the rain to try to stay warm. Nearby was Fort Hatteras, which was the next target. The naval vessels began the assault. General Butler stormed and captured the fort. 
the white flag at Fort Hatteras was flown at 11.10 in the morning. This location was one of the most important ports to the Confederacy, and it now belonged to the Union. Union forces now controlled forts on both sides of the inlet, and it will remain this way until the end of the war. While Marines were garrisoned and resting in North Carolina, after taking Forts Clark and Hatteras, Marines in Florida were organizing forces to capture a Confederate privateer ship. On the morning of September 14, 1861, 29 Marines and sailors, commanded by Captain Edward Reynolds from the frigate Colorado, rode into Pensacola's harbor. There was a rumor that the schooner Judah was in the process of being outfitted as a privateer vessel. The Marines spotted the Juna in the harbor and began to head towards their target in rowboats. Speed took priority to stealth, and the Marines rowed loudly to their target. The Confederate crew heard the Marines rowing towards them and were prepared to meet their enemy. As the boats neared the schooner, the Confederates unleashed a volley of musket fire at the Marines. The Union Marines fired back, and after a tough fight, the defenders were forced from the schooner's deck to the wharf. The first to board was Marine John Smith. Under constant fire from defenders, Marines boarded the ship, set the schooner on fire in multiple locations, freed the ship from the dock, and drifted into sea where she eventually sank. While Marines were destroying the Judah, another amphibious team was tasked with spiking the guns. However, it was still dark, and they were having a hard time finding their target. The landing party became separated in the darkness, but Lieutenant Sprotson and Gunner Borton were able to find the cannon. Luckily for them, only one man was found near the cannon. The Confederate soldier immediately pointed it at Lieutenant Sprotson, but Gunner Borton took aim and shot him down before he fired. The cannon was spiked and the two men returned to their boat. The Marines' mission in Pensacola was accomplished in 15 minutes. As the Union sailed away, they fired six canister shots from their howitzers into the yard. Sadly, John Smith, the first man to board the ship, was killed by friendly fire. In his official report, Flag Officer William Mervine stated, quote, The Marines especially seemed to have sustained the reputation borne by their branch of service as they received encomiums from all sides." Unquote. Eighteen Marines were wounded during this engagement, and John Smith was the only death. As 1861 started to end, Marines would participate in expeditions in Georgia, Texas, and North Carolina, capturing and burning Confederate property. On October 31st, Major Reynolds boarded his Marines on the ship Governor, Hurricane-like winds smashed the Union fleet, and the governor took substantial damage during this gale. Reynolds immediately put his Marines to work as damage control, and attempted to repair any damages while others tried to empty flooded compartments with anything that could hold water. They did this for two days, but the damage was too severe. The Sabine sailed alongside the governor. Lines were rigged between the ships, and the Marines abandoned their repairs and assembled on deck. One by one, they were escorted off the sinking ship. As the Marines were boarding the Sabine, another strong wind came and separated the two ships, ripping apart the lines as the two ships moved further away from each other. 
The rough waters would continuously separate the ships and bring them together, so the Marines timed the ship's movements, and when they were close enough, a few Marines at a time would jump from one ship to the other. Seven Marines were lost in this event. Compared to the Army, Marines didn't see as much action in 1861, but the number of casualties from combat was higher than those in the past during the first year of war. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll get into the second year of the American Civil War. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is A Tomb Called Iwo Jima, First-Hand Accounts from Japanese Survivors by Dan King. Military history tends to have three sides to the story. The history from the victors, the history from the losers, and the history from the ones who were actually fighting the war. The latter of those three is what I'm most fascinated with. The human element of war is where emotions and the stories are. It's where you understand what the brave men and women experienced during the most traumatic and violent experience of their lives. The Battle of Iwo Jima is one of the most famous battles in Marine Corps history, and the literature that covers what the Marines went through is extensive. This book takes a look at the war, but from the view of the Japanese fortifying the island. It's an amazing perspective of one of the most bloodiest battles in U.S. history. One thing I found extremely interesting about this book is how the perspective of the Japanese soldier changed from optimistic to understanding defeat was inevitable. The challenges that Japanese soldiers went through, not only from U.S. attacks, but from their own living conditions, was a side of the war I didn't even consider until I read this book. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.